This is the Life Changing Conversations podcast. Thought provoking, pioneering, provocative, challenging, and intriguing. And that's just Neil Shah. Neil delves into the lives of his eclectic mix of guests. With his probing, curious approach, Neil explores what these ordinary people with extraordinary stories are all about, discovering what motivates them, how experiences have shaped them, leading them to change the course of their lives. Join us in the conversation. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think on our LCC Facebook page and here on iTunes. Today's life-changing conversation is a voice and a story that doesn't often get shared. It's not something you're going to hear on mainstream media. We've all heard about this situation, but we tend to get quite a one-sided perspective on it. And for some of us, today will be a bit of an uncomfortable listen, because it's not something we're used to listening to, it's not something we're used to hearing, and it might rock your belief system. Today, I'm joined by Abigail Abednell who's a psychotherapist, a former Israeli citizen, and a Palestinian peace activist. Abigail, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you travelled down from the Scottish Highlands today, but your life didn't start in Scotland. Um, you were born in Israel in 1964. How would you describe growing up in Israel? Uh, very difficult. I grew up um, in a part of Israel that people are not usually aware of. I, I think that when people think of Israel, at least it used to be that they were very romantic about it, used to think it's a kibbutz and it's all a, a lovely sort of kind of frontier culture or something, very nature-oriented. I actually grew up in an urban desert uh, just south of Tel Aviv, south of Jaffa actually, um, in a, an environment where there was no green at all, it was all just apartment blocks. And I grew up in a working class environment very thin walls, um, very harsh, actually. And uh, grew up also in a family that was very, very troubled. So I was actually an abused child by both my parents. And I think the only thing that really saved my life, I really am grateful to my teachers, even though I have reservations about some of the education I got in Israel now, in hindsight, as a child, education saved me. I was brought up in a not very good neighborhood. There was drugs and there was alcohol and there was trouble there. But the government invested in really good education for the kids of our area, so I was very lucky. And school was my refuge. Mm. So um, school helped me develop some kind of a sense of value of myself, whereas at home it wasn't safe and it wasn't like that. So I also got a bit split. On one side I'm told I'm a lovely, very intelligent sort of young woman, young girl, and at home told the exact opposite. So it, it's been difficult. It's been very, very difficult. Tell me about sort of how that impacted you and how that imprinted you for the rest of your life. When I was actually being raised, I wasn't happy, but I didn't know anything else. So I, I grew up with trauma without knowing that I was growing up with trauma, and I grew up with chronic anxiety without knowing that I was growing up with chronic anxiety and all the problems that go with that. It's just how it was and everybody was anxious, so it's normal. When, when, when we're children, we take what's going on around us as normal. This is mm. how our mammal brain works. It's only later in life that it started to really catch up with me and I started to not function particularly well. So I had a lot of problems, uh, particularly when the structures around me started to end. So school finished and high school finished, then I went to the military and the military was a bit of a a shock as well, but it was still a system that I belonged to and where I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a suicide attempt when I was a soldier. 
but the military removed that from my file, as they do. They don't like to report suicide attempts. And they, they gave me a different placement in a job uh, in the military in the central headquarters in Tel Aviv where I worked and belonged. And I finished my two years service there with the staff sergeant rank. And uh, I was sort of okay. But by the time that finished, I was lost completely because at 20 years old, you're expected to be a, an adult to sort of finding a job and getting on with life. And I was completely ill-equipped. So as a child, I didn't know that I had these problems. But when I, when I turned 20, I realized I was 20 going on five mentally, psychologically. I was completely ill-prepared for adult life. And that, that's my family. I mean, that, that's directly related to my family and growing up, the family itself growing up in a kind of a, a really horrible pressure cooker of anxiety and siege mentality and all of that in the country in general. He talks about trauma being a normality growing up yeah. and that trauma eventually taking you to the place where you attempted to take your own life. Now, that's obviously an extreme course of action. Yeah. Tell me more about that, that what led you to that point where you chose not to be here anymore? So I had two suicide attempts, one 18 and a half in the military trying to use an Uzi and getting busted because although I planned it very carefully, um, the plan didn't come out. I think I wasn't supposed to die. And the second time was when I was about 21 and a half. And again, I tried to do something. I tried to study, didn't, didn't, didn't work out. I came back to where my parents lived, lived with them, which was a bit mad had a boyfriend, he dumped me, and that was the catalyst. And the feeling was of not having anything to look forward to, of seeing nothing but like a blank screen, or black screen in front of you, this is how I always describe it. But there's just no, it's not even pain anymore, it's just nothingness. Mm. And I think feeling like your life is pointless is, mm -hmm. is the worst thing, and that's, that was my story, that was what happened to me. When I was 18 and a half, I think I just couldn't bear the pain. But later, the second one, it was just an experience of there's just no future. There's no point. There's the, what, what's the point of it all? And if we go into that pain, what, what was behind that pain? At the time, I didn't know. But I carried, uh, because of the childhood trauma and the abuse that I carried, I suffered horrendous sense of loneliness in myself and mm. sadness and worthlessness and confusion about myself and about everything. So I, I would like to say anger, but I don't think I was angry then. got angry later, mm -hmm. but not then. It's just, it felt like uh, I was nothing, mm -hmm. nothing. As a psychotherapist, when I work with people who attempted suicide, they describe very similar things too. It's just, you're worthless, your life is pointless, and there's just nothing to look forward to. There's no point in being around and nobody cares. That's mm -hmm. what, what I felt. Nobody would care if I did go. And then I didn't die. And then I wake up, woke up from the second suicide attempt and I also planned it very carefully. As a psychotherapist, I do a lot of um, risk assessment when people come to me and talk about suicide. And I know I was a very close call. I didn't tell anybody, I did not write a note. That was not a cry for help. That was a definite attempt to end it. And when I didn't die the second time, I remember kind of waking up and thinking, uh, talking to something. I call it the universe. I don't, I'm not religious, but you know, and I was thinking, so you don't want me dead, do you? <laughs> and I realized that I got to the, I remember it very clearly. I remember feeling I got to the bottom of where you could possibly go. You can't go any lower than that. 
And I kind of thought, the thought that Podno had the only way is up. And so then it was a slow process of climbing up. And it took all kinds of details and all kinds of, uh, there were duds and there were, mm-hmm. you know, um, wrong turns as well along the way. But altogether, uh, well, here I am. And I'm glad I didn't die. Recovery is not a linear process. Oh my God, no. <laughs> it's very complex. So I just want to go back to your, your upbringing and you mentioned things that you were taught at school. What were you raised to believe growing up in Israel? I was, um, I went to school throughout the 70s. <clears throat> so um, at that time Israel was in a, a process of nation building. So I didn't realize, it. I was born in 1964, I didn't realize that Israel only existed since 1948. When I was born into it, it was already there. And so you, as a child, you think it's, al- it's always been there. You don't know anything else. From about age six or seven, so from year one, two, three, we study about the Holocaust. And we study about the history of Zionism, the history of our people. And the message is, um, we are people that everybody hates. Um, you um, cannot be anywhere except Israel. Israel is the only thing that stands between you and annihilation. You are um, you are here because we are strong and because we have soldiers who can protect us. And you are going to be one yourself. Um, at age six, they show you. They show. I don't know if they do it now. I hope not. But they basically would show us these slides uh, of you know emaciated bodies. You know these these skeletal bodies from the Holocaust. All these you know what they found in Auschwitz, for example, when Auschwitz was liberated. You know all these horrible mm. that the poor children in pajamas, in stripy pajamas, and the yellow star, and there was no emotional support. There was nothing. So this is a wonderful way of traumatizing children for life. And the message is. And, and that's accompanied with stories, heart-wrenching stories about the poor kid whose mother had only potato peel to feed her in the Warsaw Ghetto and really, really things that tug at your emotions. And I remember feeling horrible for these kids and feeling guilty. I was being abused at home, but I was feeling guilty because I wasn't one of those kids. So that's sort of the complexity of feelings that you begin to develop at an incredibly young and vulnerable age. And nobody talks to you about it. There was no emotional support or psychological support to that. That should be banned, actually. For, for me, Abigail, mm. there's a couple of things you said that I really want to pick up on. Number one, that's not just traumatic. That's brainwashing. When you're doing that to a young child mm-hmm. that is still developing a sense of right from wrong and you're imprinting them with that kind of information that they probably don't have the emotional capacity to really make sense of, no. that is brainwashing. And we've seen this before in history. It's a doctrination, absolutely. It tells you that the education system told us who we are, and this is who we were. Now, the interesting thing about Israel, Israel is a bit schizophrenic, because those people who are shown in the, in the um, slideshows and who we read stories about, they were considered to be weak and pathetic. So Israel is actually looking down at Holocaust survivors, at, at the victims of the Holocaust. Israel was never respectful of them. And the idea was they allowed themselves to go like sheep to the slaughter because they didn't go to Palestine and they did not become Zionist. And they were, they were stupid. We were to be the new Jew. We were going to grow up to be powerful soldiers that nobody would mess around with. And no more like sheep to the slaughter was the message that I absolutely got imprinted with. 
we didn't learn a universal message from the Holocaust that that should never happen to anybody. We learned, we learned that that should never happen to us and we're going to make sure that it will never happen to us and we're going to become so powerful and protect our state because our state is the only thing that stands between us and annihilation because we're Jewish, therefore everybody hates us by definition. Anybody who isn't Jewish is potentially anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism is being taught as some kind of a horrible bogeyman, almost like a, a supernatural force that you have no control over. And it doesn't matter how nice you are, it doesn't matter what you do with your life, they're going to get you. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is what I grew up with. Uh, a very regular question we used to discuss, particularly when we were a little bit older at school, is do you think another Holocaust is possible? The, and I realize now that the point of those discussions has always been just to imprint the idea in our head that it is possible. And so you grow up in the shadow of it. Um, the idea of uh, what, what we were doing there in that country, this is the country, the myth is the country that we came back to after 2000 years of exile. The myth is that the Romans exiled all the Jews out of the ancient Judea and that we came back. There was no mention of us doing anything wrong. And the message is, we're just poor people who suffered and we just want to be safe and we just want a country of our own and we're surrounded by seven Arab states all wanting to throw us into the sea and they just don't want us to have what we want because they hate the Jews. This is the narrative and it was perfect. I felt as a child quite frustrated because I was thinking, but why do they hate us? I didn't, I didn't question that they did, they, that means you as well. I didn't question that everybody hated us. I just felt frustrated by why, but I'm a good person. Why do they hate me? But I was told, you're Jewish, that's why. And that's it. That's just how it is. So yeah, brainwashing, you can call that, absolutely. As a psychotherapist, if that wasn't a country or a group of people, but as an individual, how would you describe that from, from a personal perspective? I would de describe that as deep insecurity. You're very polite. Okay. How you I'm a psychotherapist, that? so part of my training is to be able to diagnose all kinds of things as well. And I, initially, I used to give a lot of talks and write a lot about uh, how traumatized Israeli society is. But as years moved on a bit, I'm actually thinking of Israeli society as very cultish. Wow. Um, because when I've worked, uh, I've been in private practice for 20 years now, and I've worked with people in two countries, in Australia and, and now in Scotland, and I've worked with many cult survivors, very various cults, you know, some religious, some not religious, and went through all kinds of processes with people to, to free themselves from the brainwashing and the, the persecution, that, that there was real persecution. And it started to dawn on me how similar I was to them. And how I define a cult is when you don't really, you're not really allowed to have an individual identity, but your identity is all kind of mixed up with the identity of the group. Mm you're required to submit yourself and who you are to the benefit for the benefit of the group. It's not particularly Jewish, by the way. This is human psychology. We, mm. we do have the capacity to, all of us, to do that. But this is how I grew up. So I'm, on one hand, I'm also, I'm a victim of my family, but also living in that kind of society on top of that. And that's, I think that's why I left. I left Israel in 1991, when I was 27, and I went as far away as I could to Australia. At the time I wasn't conscious of it, but my feeling probably was that I was escaping. Mm -hmm. um, I went with my first husband and I was very fortunate that through him and his education we were able to get to Australia as permanent residence, and so we were quite secure when we got there. And it suddenly was a sigh of relief, just being away. 
I didn't realize, of course, there was a bigger journey to to adjust my psychology. It's not just enough to leave, but leaving meant that I was free from that kind of pressure cooker of an environment and things were a little bit greener and a little bit mm. nicer and a little bit more patient and less kind of hectic and anxious around me. So, um, and when I left, I was very frightened too because I was uh, told that I would never be able to make any friends, that I was very stupid to leave, that uh, they will find me they, who are they? They, the anti-Semites, will get me. And who are the anti-Semites? Everybody. Everybody who isn't Jewish. Okay. So everybody who isn't Jewish is potentially anti-Semitic, even if they're nice to me. I can only trust people up to a point. So you, you raised, not only did I grow up in fear because of my trauma, I was brought up to live in fear permanently. Don't show yourself, don't stand out, because you're, you're going to make yourself visible and people are going to get you especially if you're out of Israel and you're among them, the non-Jews. This is, we've heard this story in another nation at another point in history where it's pretty much the same thing that was going on, except the people who were persecuted were of a different background. And that's something that I find shocking, that if as a people you had an experience, that you are then using the same narrative yourself against people that feel you, you, you feel threatened by. Sadly, I get asked this question a lot. I mean, how could the people who have done, who have suffered this, could do that to others, um, or use the same narrative, or have the same way of thinking? It's very simple. Um, as a psychotherapist, I know very well that people with trauma are more likely to pass it than not to pass it. Abusers become uh, not sorry, everyone abused becomes abusers, but yeah. it it is common. And so people, unless people go through some major, major, <laughs> I call it brain transplant, unless they go through some major, major personality development and, and serious healing in their psychology, they're very likely to pass it on. Uh, the clients I love the most are the parents who come to me and say, I've got trauma from my childhood, I know that. And the reason I'm here is because I don't want to pass it on to my children. These are the clients I absolutely love. But these are not the majority. And also now it's not just childhood trauma, obviously what we're starting to learn from epigenetics is things get passed down. Yes. So if you have people who are now residents, citizens of Israel, but came from a background where they or their families were involved that's in right. the Holocaust, that's imprinted genetically. Now there's a little bit of a problem, and I don't know how your listeners are going to feel about that. Um, the problem in my culture does not start from the Holocaust. Okay. Jewish culture is a culture of persecution. Jewish religion is a religion of persecution. Right? If you go right to the beginning, if you go to all the stories that I grew up with, we studied Bible for 12 years at school because it's compulsory. Now, it's not being taught from a religious perspective if you go through the secular school system. But the you learn Christian everything. Bible. No. As in the Torah? The Old Testament. Okay. So yeah. everything that's included in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The New Testament is the Christian Bible and the Jews don't believe um, it has any value. So you study the um, five books of the Torah and mm -hmm. then you, you go to the other, the, the rest of it. And, and the stories are always about how our people were always persecuted by somebody, uh, how God always saves us. All the festivals, almost all the festivals in Jewish culture and Jewish religion are about that. Uh, we were just about to be annihilated by so-and-so and then God comes and saves us. So there, this is way before the Holocaust. So um, one of my really difficult uh, criticisms, I think, of where I come from is that it, nobody ever questions stories like uh, Joshua. 
walking into um, ancient Canaan and committing total genocide there mm. and settler colonialism that he committed. So I mean, let's just remove all the indigenous people and go in and take the land. According to the biblical story, which I do not believe is history, but according to the biblical story, which is a narrative that uh, is identified with our identity, yeah, um, that's what happened. And that was okay. Why? Because God said so. Where is the morality of it? So when, when we learn stories like that, there was never a question of, uh, let's talk about this. Let's think, was it ethical? Was it right? It's never questioned, not to this day. It's being taught as just, that's just how the story is. And whether you believe it's history or not, this is how it is, it's never questioned. So it never occurred to any of us to, to, to think that this was wrong, actually. You taught, you taught about it as a story of triumph. Oh, we were poor victims in Egypt, and then we get saved, and now we, we have a nation, and now we have a place. What about the people who live there? Nobody questions that. Th that's not a very popular topic, and I, I got quite seriously harassed uh, in Australia when I, I had death threats, when I started to become an activist, and I started to talk a little bit about that, because Jewish religion is not up for discussion. It's a big, big taboo. But my point is, if you want to understand the mentality in Israel, you cannot completely divorce it from... The, the religion and the culture that uh, is behind it. Zionism may be a secular movement, but it's heavily influenced by all the myths and stories about that, that actually make up Jewish identity. I have a huge problem with that. Because part of, maybe I'm going to the end a bit too quickly, we'll get there, but part of how I see myself now is not a member of a tribe, but a member of the human species. Mm -hmm. And so you or me or anybody else is no less or no more than me. We're all together in this, we're all sharing the same rock, which we have to look after. And I realize now that actually being a member of a tribe um, is not necessarily a, a bad thing or a wrong thing, provided that tribe doesn't think itself as separate from the rest. And that's the problem with Jewish culture. So a couple of other things I want to pick up on. What is Zionism? Zionism is the Jewish national movement, which was started by Theodor Herzl uh, back in the late 19th century in Europe. And it was aimed at finding a solution to the Jewish problem, Jewish problem of persecution. The Jews were being seriously persecuted in Eastern Europe, and there was mass migrations of, at the time, of Jews from Russia and Poland to the United States and to the UK as well, uh, just trying to escape persecution. It was very real. So these people were sitting, all men, sitting together and thinking, well, what can we do? What can be a good solution? And they were influenced very much by European nationalism at the time and colonialism, mm. colonial mindset, which was very disrespectful naturally of the indigenous people, the white colonial uh, countries where had the might and the right and that was it, and they, had the, they felt they had the freedom to do whatever they want. There was none of that narrative about racism or anything like that. Mm. People just took that that was just normal. So the Zionist movement evolves against that background. And they, they, decide, they started a program basically, which was aimed at creating a national, uh, the, the language was national home for the Jewish people in historic Palestine. Uh, they thought initially very briefly about p potential other locations. And then they decided, no, the Jewish people have some kind of a connection with um, Palestine through the religion, so that's the place we're going to go. Except Palestine was fully inhabited. But of course that didn't matter, because um, if you are um, influenced by colonial mindset, it doesn't matter, the indigenous people are just, as we were brought up to believe, they were just peasants, they were just falahim, 
they were just nobodies. The country was neglected, they didn't develop the resources they have. That sounds familiar as mm -hmm. in colonial narrative, mm -hmm. then that's exactly what it was. And the idea was to create uh, a national home and also take all these pathetic Jews, because the Zionist movement thought the Jews in Europe are to blame for their own persecution because they weren't strong and they were pathetic and they were very urban, and then train them in agriculture and make them into frontier people. And uh, paradoxically, they were actually uh, looking at the uh, Palestinian who grew up on the land and lived on the land and who was a farmer as a kind of a role model. Hmm. They wanted to create Jews who would be like that. So there were several, we were taught there were several waves of migrations. The first two were quite small and none of these Jews lasted. They all left. Uh, Palestine's described at the time as full of swamps and malaria and all kinds of, and, and these kids were all very well educated, coming from fairly rich families, going to university. They were not suited for that life. Uh, but the plan continued. I mean, the program continued. They started to bring more and more Jews into Palestine. Basically, they would go and they would either buy some land or take over some land, create a what they call a wall and a tower, Chomau Migdal in Hebrew, uh, which is like a, some of the original what they call what they call settlements in the West Bank were a bit like that. You, you create facts on the ground. And then, of course, Palestinian landowners would go and try and destroy them, and so then they become the bad guys who fight the poor Jews who want to take the land, and that's how it all escalates. The idea of the Zionist movement was created to create a national home by gradually creating facts on the ground, and at the same time work really, really hard with Western powers to try and gain international support for the future Jewish state. Uh, of course, in Palestine at the time, there were two, the first, uh, the power that controls that uh, before, up until the First World War is the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, and then after that, the English take over Palestine, and so in, in the whole of Palestine is under British mandate. So you've got the indigenous people living under British mandate, and you've got a very small uh, trickle of Jewish people coming in uh, to try and live there. and. Um, so the Zionist movement is essentially uh, a settler-colonial national movement. Settler-colonialism is you walk into a land and you replace, so you aim to replace the indigenous people with your own people. This is what the Zionist movement is. I didn't know that growing up. To us that was just a pioneer movement with wonderful values. I had no idea that it was a settler-colonial movement. Ultimately it was an invading force of sorts. Oh no, we didn't see it that way because we were the poor David against the mighty Goliath. I mean, we were just the poor little Jews. I mean, we were not doing any harm, were we? So nobody told us that we expelled 750,000 Palestinians in between 1947 and 1948 at gunpoint. Nobody told us that we destroyed 500 villages and towns. Nobody told us that we stole land and houses and um, brought Jewish uh, refugees from Europe to live in those houses. And I have a personal story on that, an angle on that. Nobody told us there were mass rapes, gang rapes of Palestinian women. Nobody told us there were massacres where people would be locked up like in Sin, locked up in one building and burnt alive inside. We didn't know that because we were the good people. We were the victim. Victims don't do bad things. Victims are good. This is what you grow up with. We couldn't possibly be bad. I, I grew up on a diet of admiring those, uh, what, I, what people are called terrorists, but they were freedom fighters who tried to kick out the Brits out of Palestine so that the Jewish state can happen.
So I grew up on all that being heroic, not uh, criminal. There's a fine line between freedom fighter and terrorist, and in many parts of the world we've seen, depending on which side of the fence you're exactly. standing, you label them accordingly. And all rights history. Absolutely, and obviously we've seen the, the revisionist history that has led us to believe certain things which are not always based on fact, they're based on propaganda. And I think, I guess where I'm sitting with this, based on everything you've shared, is that the people that are subjected to this kind of behaviour have a right to be angry and upset. Absolutely, they do. And to stand up for, for themselves. Yes, I know, but once um, you have bigger guns, and you have the support of the international community, and now there's more of you than the indigenous people, then it's very easy to dehumanize and to, to paint the Palestinian now as the bad guy. And I think if you look at colonial narrative, that's always what's been done. Colonial powers would walk into a, an, a land, they pretended it was empty to start with, like in Australia or you know, places it, like that. And was it until the late 70s, Aboriginals were described as flora and fauna, so they basically had the same rights as That's animals right. and plants. So in, in Australia, the, the, um, the Aborigines got the right to vote. In other words, they were included for the first time in the census as human beings in 1968. Uh, 67 or 68, don't catch me on that. Mm. But it's one of, one of the, I think it's 67 perhaps. I remember it was one year away from the United States that accepted the, uh, the African-Americans, ex-slaves, as, as citizens who were, had the right to vote. Mm. It was very close together. No, they were not, they were not even human beings. But I think that's the narrative that you develop. If you want to, if you want to take somebody's home and take everything they've got, you can't treat them like human beings. If you start to look in their eyes and say, well, they're just a person like me, you wouldn't be able to harm them. Most people will not be able to harm other humans if they thought of them that way. So there's a very powerful narrative that tells you that the indigenous person is not actually a human being like you. I remember looking at books when I was still living in Australia and I was doing part of my degree. I remember looking at original books that were published in England about Aboriginals, Aboriginal people. So the English colonizers went there and then went back. Some people went back and wrote books and they're lazy, they're not human, they're apes, mm. they're stupid. Look at all everything they've gotten, they never developed it. So the same narrative exists about the Palestinians. They did nothing, they had nothing there, they never developed it. It's absolute nonsense actually. Mm. But Israel, the original, um, Haganah first, which predates the Israeli army, went in there and basically destroyed everything. By the time people come in, there's not much evidence of anything. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors on my mother's side. And they ended up, uh, they escaped Europe uh, on a boat, which was still illegal by British uh, rule. And they were put in a detention camp in Cyprus. And then in 1948, when Israel declared itself a state unilaterally, they were brought into into uh, Israel, the new state of Israel and they were given a home to live which was just taken from a Palestinian family in Yaffa. I remember it. So um, the, there was still, you know, people describe now there was still food in the kitchen. There, there was still people escaped with hardly anything. They just ran away. We were told that they were told to go away, to leave by their own leaders. What we were not told is that we drove them out at gunpoint. And those who wouldn't, we actually harmed. We did lots of really, really bad things. It was interesting you mentioned the word revisionist historians because revisionist historians is used differently in the narrative about Palestine that I'm part of. 
revisionist historians were not looking at the historians like Ilan Pape and Benny Morris, the people who had access to archives and ex actually exposed the truth for the first time. Avi Schleim, people like that. And it was Avi Schleim's book that actually got me to start to question my own uh, my own belief system about all of it and what I was brought up to believe. So revisionist historians in this context are the ones who actually told us the truth. But I know what you mean by revisionist Yeah, and I'm talking about people going back in history yes. and changing the narrative That's to suit right. their political agenda. Yeah. I think when people think of Israel, they can get quite confused. Some people don't really understand why Israel behaves the way it does or what it does, or they don't quite get it. And I find that when I give talks, I find that a lot of that comes from the audience. People need to understand Israel has been very, very consistent. If anything, it's always been quite single-minded and quite clear, and it's never deviated from its job and its mandate I call it and Israel's mandate is to be a Jewish state for Jews to be a Jewish safe haven to protect the Jews from the next Holocaust so Israel has made it very easy for Jews to come in and so there's a law called the right of the law of re, law of returns so basically um, any Jew from anywhere in the world who can prove that their mother is Jewish and grandmother is Jewish can become a citizen of Israel immediately and get a few benefits about that as well because Israel is trying to draw Jews to come in. There are about 12 million Jews living outside of Israel. There's a lot more Jews outside than there are inside. Um, if you understand it that way, if you understand that Israel is to be a safe haven for Jews in a world that's perceived to be hostile to Jews, where Jews are forever the victim and the potential victim, which is how it's seen, then it makes sense that the state needs to be controlled by Jews and run by Jews for Jews. It's, a, it's, an, ethno, it's an ethnocracy rather than anything else. It's a state for a particular people. This is something unheard of in the modern world these days. What Israel's tried to do is it tried to portray itself as a kind of a Western liberal kind of country. You see, we're pro-gay, we're so open-minded, we're so great, we've got scientists, we've got this, we've got technology, we're modern, we're democracy. And so they, they, they created that kind of, almost like a, a smokescreen. People don't really, but that's what people think. Mm. You know, Israelis are seen as whites. You know, they kind of belong with the West. But actually what Israel is, is an ethnic, uh, a, a, an apartheid state, ethnic state intended for Jews only. If you understand that Israel's job is to be a safe haven for Jews, that's the logic behind it. That's why it's there. If you want Israel not to do that, you have to convince Jews that they're not under threat anymore, and good luck with that. You, you found yourself in, in the army. How did it feel being in the army? Were you proud to serve your country? What, what did you believe about the Palestinians at the time when you were serving uh, the Israeli Defense Force? So I would classify myself as a kind of a softy, lefty kind of person. So as growing up and growing up and being brutalized in my own family, I actually felt sorry for people who were being mistreated. So I remember seeing Palestinians uh, in the building sites all around me. Um, I tell a story in the book Beyond Tribal Loyalties about um, being taken to a building site once and seeing a Palestinian from Gaza who was trying to stay overnight and the brutality that he was treated with. Um, you, when I was a teenager, you'd go to restaurants and the dishwasher, the people who washed dishes and did all the menial jobs were often Palestinians. and. We would laugh at their accent and things like that. But I, I thought of myself as a nice person. So um, while I'm still yeah. soft and, uh, and feeling sorry for people who suffer, I don't quite join the dots. 
And I wanted to go to the military. The, the going to the military in Israel is a rite of passage. If you don't go, you can be in a lot of trouble. And that wasn't even an option. I mean, I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. There are lots of young people now refusing to go, which I'm very proud of, those that do that. But I, I was in no position to, to refuse. One of the things I, I tell people is that um, the time when I felt most accepted in Israel, in general, in society, just walking down the street and feeling okay about myself was when I was wearing uniform. Because that's when you're kind of really embraced by everybody. You know, soldiers get special prizes in restaurants or they get special treatment here, special treatment, because you're, you're the cream of society, you're doing your bit. It's a rite of passage. I was excited about going to the military. What happened to me is I went to a very difficult combat-like course for women, which I volunteered to go into, which was platoon commander course. I um, finished it, but the stress was too much, and that's when I had my first suicide attempt. And so then I got transferred to uh, another base, and I got to do something different, which was more peaceful, and it was more um, office, an office kind of job. But I was um, from high school, I studied to become a technical drafts person. Mm-hmm. So they put me in a unit, which was the unit that planned all the um, training for all the military. And I was very lucky because I had my own studio, I was on my own, and the only person I reported to was a lieutenant colonel. So I was only a puny um, a corporal, and I was reporting to somebody very high up, and he treated me really like, like, a, you know, like a colleague. And I felt very important. I felt I was doing something worthwhile. The unit I was a part of was in just above the central headquarters in Tel Aviv is underground, so the whole I was in the area up above above it on ground, and I was it was before computers, before um, software for drawing, so it was done by hand but because I had the skills. That's what they get, got me to do, and I was drawing the plans. The, it's like gun charts, and do you know about that? You know, like plans for all the training of the whole military and all the cooperation between the military and the Navy and the, it was top secret stuff. I wasn't obviously, I, w- I had a special um, top secret, um, what do you call it? Classic security clearance. Security clearance. Uh, of course it was hush hush. One day uh, during the, Israel invaded Lebanon the second time in, um, in 1982 while I was in my service and we didn't really understand anything about that. But my commanding officer one day came up stairs to my studio in civilian clothing and he said he was going to a meeting in Lebanon and do I know English and my English was very good and I said yes I do and he said can you do this in English so there was a smaller version of some of the plans that I was supposed to draw up in English I later realized that these were the plans to train the um, Lebanese militia who later on went to commit the Sabran Chatila massacres so in a way I'm complicit in a way, I, I cooperated with the system that did that. Not directly, I wasn't a decision maker, I was just a, a cog in a machine, but nonetheless, I was a cog in a machine. So that's the unit that I was a part of. And But I felt proud. I was made to feel proud. I was made to feel valuable. I liked it. Um, I tell a story about going on the bus one day in uniform, going to meet my boyfriend in another city on the bus from the Israeli central bus station, which is not far from where I um, was, where my base was my military base, and there was a Palestinian man at the back of the bus, an old man, a very old man, with a, with a shopping basket in his, in his lap. And I was just a couple of rows in front of him, and suddenly this military, two 
big guys come in, there's a border, they call them border patrol, they come in on the bus and they do security sweep. And they don't go into any of us. We're all, all the Jewish people are fine, and especially me in uniform. They go straight to the back to this poor old guy and start harassing him and asking him for an ID. He was probably a citizen of Israel. And he had a blue ID. You know, if you're a citizen of Israel, you have a blue ID. If you're not, you have a different color ID, ID, ID card. So um, they harassed him. And I remember feeling horrible. I remember feeling really ashamed looking at him. And, you know, he wasn't looking, he wasn't making eye contact. And I, I looked at him and I wanted to offer something. And then I realized I'm wearing uniform. That there's no way he's going to get any comfort from me looking like this. So uh, when I talk about my story, it wasn't an epiphany like one minute. It took many, many, many years and lots of little dots like that that eventually got joined. So I'm not seeing the light then. It's not like I become enlightened, but it felt profoundly uncomfortable. But still, being in uniform, I was accepted. I was doing my bit for my society. It was all good. What were your belief systems around Palestinian people at that time? Oh, but the word Palestinian didn't exist. So the word was Arabs. Okay. And uh, I would say I would classify myself now as racist. I don't think I thought of Arabs as quite the same as us. They were somewhat inferior. I didn't have clear views, but they're somewhat inferior. The language, the, the music, the, the smell, horrible stuff. I don't, obviously don't feel that way at all now, but that's how I grew up. And, I am ashamed to admit that, but it's the truth. If I'm really honest and I look back, yeah, that, that's the truth. And I only met a Palestinian for the first time as an equal when I was in my early 30s in Australia. Israel keeps Palestinians and Jews very, very segregated, very separated from each other. It's very much an apartheid state. I never hung out with Palestinian kids when I was a kid. So we call them Arabs. The word Palestinian didn't come, up, come into my vocabulary until I was 25, went to university and had a rogue lecturer who then got driven out of the university because he taught us things he wasn't supposed to teach us. So that's when I became aware of the word Palestinian. I also want to talk about being a conscientious objector, what that involved and whether it even crossed your mind and what you thought of others who objected. Oh, I didn't know anybody who objected. Okay. And it never even would have occurred to me this would be treacherous. We, we, you just, uh, my generation anyway, I mean, I think there were the, the odd one who did that at the time, but I had no exposure to that whatsoever. It was just not the done thing. Do you know, in Israel, if you are a conscientious objector, um, you will go to prison, symbolically, because you need to be punished for that. Um, and you will have trouble later in life, in, for example, if you apply for a home loan, to buy a house, to buy a flat. Because on all the forms, the official forms in Israel, bank forms, job applications, you are required to tell your military ID number and when you joined up and when you finished. And if your finishing date is not the right thing, so for women it's two years compulsory service and for, for men it's three, and if it's not right, they'll want to know why. So if you were let off because you've got a congenital heart problem from birth or something, some serious health problem, that is kind of okay. But if you're a conscientious objector, that's a whole different story. So what led you to your new perspective, the new narrative? Because obviously you went from being very much a part of the system, you know, being part of the army and being brought up with, as you describe yourself, as racist views. 
how did the narrative change for you? Where did the new perspective come from? Um, I've always, I think I've always felt that there were kind of little holes in the narrative that I could quite put my finger on. And as I described in my story in Beyond Tribal Loyalties, I, I, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. There was nobody to ask and I didn't even have words for it. But something didn't quite sit right. Um, when I left Israel in 1991, I was removed from that society and I think I was exposed to a different perspective on it from afar. I think you do get a different perspective mm. when you're outside of a system. And gradually, I started to see that things, things are not right. You know, when Ariel Sharon walked onto the Temple Mount and basically provoked the Second Intifada and was a real bully and we saw it on television, I got very, very angry. And I called the Israeli consulate that day and I uh, asked, what is the process to renounce my Israeli citizenship? I was so angry. And I renounced my Israeli citizenship in 2001. From that, from that time on, I became what I think of as a kind of an activist. And I started to write. And I remember writing one article that got amazing, amazingly got published in our newspaper in Canberra, in the Canberra Times. I did a big feature out of it because I showed a lot of sympathy with the Palestinians and I revealed how so many of the poor people from Gaza were coming and building our buildings and they were treated as second-class citizens and were not given the same rights as other laborers and all of that. And it was still a bit soft around the edges. I was still not all the way there. But as soon as I started to speak up, uh, I, I suddenly drew to myself, they suddenly got contacted with Palestinian people. And that's when things really started to change because I met people. Um, at the same, around the same time I read Avi Schleim's book it's called The Iron Wall, it's a pretty heavy read, it's very heavy history, not exactly my cup of tea in terms of, it's not a light read, but one of the things he does is that he, he's from Israel himself originally and he says, well this is what they teach, he would, he would go through one, two, three, four, five, through the points, this is what they teach in school in Israel, this is the truth. This is what they teach in school, this is the truth. And so I'm going one by one and he knocks down everything that I knew, that I thought I knew. I was very uncomfortable. I wanted to tell myself he was mad, he was bad. I didn't want to believe him, but I knew he was telling the truth. Uh, this is a respected academic, there was evidence there. And I had to, I, I, so I was conflicted between what my intellect was seeing, which is, well, here's the fact. And my feelings were telling me, oh God, that's terrible, that I can't, I, and I felt like a traitor, I felt guilty, I felt, uh, a kind of a disbelief of it. I didn't want to believe it. Uh, somebody knocks down everything that you believe in. Mm. So I, but eventually, and, and that took me through a very, very, a very big psychological process, which I was already primed to do because I was past my psychotherapy training. I had the tools to work with that as well. So we, we worked in, our, in my degree, we did something called differentiation of self, which is based on some family therapy theory. It's very useful to differentiate from your family's belief system. And then I realized I wasn't just differentiated from my family, I had to differentiate from my entire society. I actually wrote a paper about it. It was all part of the process. And then um, I remember being friends with the, would you believe, the Palestinian ambassador to Australia, because I became this person that everybody invited to everywhere because I was this one Israeli, ex-Israeli, who people have, I, was, I thought I was on my own. I thought I was the only one. And, and people were sort of invited. I was a bit of, a, a bit of an anomaly. And he, I remember him saying to me one day, his name is Ali Kazak. He lives in Australia now, and he used to be the head of the Palestinian delegation to Australia because Palestine wasn't a state, so they didn't have an ambassador. He was as good as. And he said to me, Abigail, colonialism. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. 
and I really didn't understand what he was talking about. He might as well be talking another language to me. Eventually, eventually, after many years, the, the dots began to join. But it was a process of reading something, being confronted, facing my own emotions, meeting real people, and then gradually uh, reconciling all of it with my own values, which were basically, I don't believe in the superiority of one bunch of people over another. I don't believe that this bunch of people have more to exist than that but that those bunch of people, I don't care who they are. So uh, I had to live based on my own values. Another point that's worth mentioning is that when I was educated at school and they taught us about the Holocaust, they really hammered into us that being a bystander is a very, very bad and despicable thing to do. So all, they were talking about all these um, Europeans who sat there watching what's happening to the Jews and just let it happen. Where were they? Where were all? And, and Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial Commemoration Research Center in Jerusalem, um, created this thing called right, uh, Righteous of the Nations. So there's this title. So if a person risked their lives for no gain just to help Jews, they were given this title. And we were always taught about this and how amazing that is. And, but how few of these people were, like, I don't know, 4,000 in the whole of Europe who were prepared to do that. The rest are just either collaborators or bystanders. So I knew bystander I didn't want it, I didn't want to be. I thought it was the most despicable thing. Of course, closing a circle later, I realized that not speaking about Palestine, I am a bystander. I know the truth and I'm not speaking. So I knew I didn't want to be a bystander. So that's what I'm doing. I'm not a saint at all. I'm mm. trying to atone for my sins and I'm trying to give the Palestinian story a voice. And I think that's the least they deserve. And I always thought that even if I never saved a Palestinian in my life and never did anything useful, at least I don't want to die without having spoken up. So I don't want to be a bystander. It's a bit selfish, but that's that's the truth. Why are more people not speaking up? You know, particularly now, the tools of communication have been democratized, we have access to information, we have access to all sides of every story. Uh, I appreciate that kind of the mainstream media doesn't always give us a balanced view. But we do have access to more information. Why are more people not standing up? Why are there so many bystanders? Well, there's a lot of, you probably know there's many factors in that. Well, partly it's that people are afraid. I think people are, a lot of people are fear-based. Uh, we live in a world with neoliberalism, neo the kind of economic system we have, which I think deliberately keeps most people in a state of insecurity. When people are insecure, limit brain takes over. We just worry about ourselves and the people around us. We don't have the energy or the space to worry about other people. That's one thing. There's plenty of factors. But another one, a big one, is that uh, where did you see in the mainstream media anywhere? Uh, the BBC or The Guardian or The Independent even? Uh, anywhere. Where did you see the word settler colonialism ever in relation to Israel? This is words that we're trying to bring into the narrative. And as far as I'm concerned, I've moved completely beyond all of that. I'm saying a crime is a crime. Settler colonialism is a crime. We live in a post-colonial world. The ex-colonial powers are kind of starting to recognize the crimes they've committed. It's talked about a little bit more. Not ideal, not perfect, but it's a bit more recognition. Um, why is that allowed to happen in Palestine and nobody says anything? So there are all kinds of political and um, economic agendas that are contributing to that but people like myself what we're trying to do is bring the narrative out so that the truth is actually acknowledged and then let the public choose then let the public say yes I'm supporting settler colonialism because I think um, it's right for one bunch of people to walk into somebody else's house and take it one of the things I'm saying always is I'm saying listen think of it as a house invasion 
in our society, if uh, a, a person walked into somebody else's house and say, my family and I have been um, homeless and we suffered for a long time, so piss off, I'm taking your house away, you're allowed to live in that one little room, we'll take the rest. And then they take over the house gradually and that if the other one protests, they tell the neighbors that this, this person's really bad because it's having something against them. And, and then you begin to dictate, you know, when they can allow to use, when, when can they use the toilets and when are they allowed to use the, the showers and gradually you push them out. None of that would be accepted in our society. Inside our society is a criminal system, a criminal law system, which says that you just can't do that. The police will be on to you in a minute. In the international arena, though, we don't seem to be operating by the same rules. It's a bit of a jungle out there. So I think there's lots of answers to lots of factors participate, but that's just a couple of points on that. Uh, forgive me if I have not understood this correctly, but I was under the impression there was international laws. Isn't this covered by the Geneva Convention, Article 4? Israel is in violation of, I don't know, something like almost, I don't know, what was the last count? A lot of United Nations resolutions. In fact, there was an article that got uh, distributed just this morning that I saw that the International Court of Law already ruled that the wall, the separation wall that Israel created that cuts right through Palestinian homes and villages and all that, is actually illegal. So what? Nobody does anything about it. So we have uh, good ideas, we have intentions, but we don't necessarily act on them for various reasons. So yes, Israel is in violation, horrible violation of, of uh, do you know all the children in Israel, uh, Palestinian children sitting in, in adult prisons, no protection. Who knows how many of them are sexually abused? Who, know that? Who knows what's going on to them? They're being tortured. Children as young as 10, 8, 9. Uh, so from time to time UNICEF says something, from time to time the United Nations says something, but Israel is continuing with impunity because it's got the United States behind it, it's got the UK behind it. And people talk about, oh, we've got to be balanced. Israel has the right to security. I'm sorry, when you deal with a system like settler colonialism, where it's an inherent imbalance of power, you side with the victims. If you try to be balanced when there is imbalance of power, like, for example, I'm a couple therapist. You work with a couple or you meet a couple. If you find out that there's violence, you don't do couple therapy. The first thing you do is you intervene to protect the victim. So whoever's the abused side, and particularly if there are children, they're first taken to safety. Then we can give therapy to the, to the offender later. But the first thing we do is we dismantle that, that, power, that power structure. People have been fooled and confused by narratives that talk about peace negotiations. And what negotiations? It, it doesn't work like that. When you have two grossly unequal sides in a conflict like that, there is no negotiation. So it's, it's very confusing to a lot of people, but they need to start thinking about it in terms of settler colonialism and a massive imbalance of power, and then maybe they'll start to um, think differently. Your journey into activism, what was the consequences to you? What, 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 you know, how did that impact and impair your life? Um, well, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, I felt for myself, once I got over the, uh, all the emotional turmoil, I felt really good that I was living according to my values. In terms of uh, impact on the outside, I made a huge number, I met a huge number of wonderful people and I feel like I'm part of a growing community of people with shared values. The other side of it, of course, is that I had a lot of opposition as well and when I started to come out with my ideas and my writing and I, I did a lot of public speaking, still do, um, I received a few, quite a few death threats 
back really? in Australia. Yes, yeah. I there was some at some some point it became so bad that I actually had to report it to the police. I was really worried. I was thinking something is really going to happen here. Who and is so making these death threats? I don't I don't know who they are, but um, they're obviously supporters of Israel, either from Israel or from elsewhere. But um, I don't know who these people are. But and how would you receive these death threats? So way back in the day, you know, the fax machine with the roll of paper. So I would get these rolls all day going. So a whole roll after roll will be covered in threats. We're coming to get you. Um, and all all the names in the books. I mean, you can. I don't want to repeat nasty language and uh, recordings, but any name that you can call me was used. Um, and telephone calls in the middle of the night, voices whispering, calling me a Nazi, a Hitler. We're coming for you. We're going to kill you. So I got a bit worried for a bit there because I didn't expect it. I was unprepared for that. I thought, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. This is good. And then that started. So I called the police because I'm of the view that anybody who's being threatened should not allow themselves to be isolated. So I immediately enlisted a whole lot of support around me. I, made, I, went, I knew that legally this is illegal, you can't threaten people. So I went to the police. The police were great, the Australian police. I had two civilian clothing police came to my office, take all the evidence. And uh, they gave me one phone call afterwards and said, we called them. We know who they are, we called them, we told them that it's illegal to do that, so that was it. It all stopped. Then when I came to Scotland, I got one death threat when I arrived in the, my new life in the north of Scotland. And the Scottish police were brilliant about that as well. That was online, and they sorted it out. And of course, they don't let you know, they don't tell you who these people are. This whole intelligence is all kind of secret. Uh, and, and I have to tell you, bullies like that are cowards. They don't have... The, I, I never hide who I am. I never hide anything anymore. It's all out there. Um, but bullies who behave like that against people, no matter how strongly they feel about what they feel, threatening people is not okay. And so they don't tend to say who they are. Mm. If they were that brave, I think they would say who they are. But, they, you know, they're acting illegal. So I don't hesitate using the force of the law against that. I will not isolate myself and I will not tolerate that kind of abuse. There's another part of that story which I think from my understanding, obviously led to some uncomfortable challenges for you, which is the Australian Headscarf Day. Tell us about that. Oh yeah, in 2002, I initiated National Headscarf Day, which was my own kind of somewhat naive attempt at uh, creating some kind of national action to support Muslim women, because um, after 9-11, 2001, Muslim women started to be spat on and, and attacked in Australian streets in Sydney and in Melbourne. Um, and so I thought that's just outrageous and I can't stand up for that. So I remember I was in a rally for Palestine. I was already an activist by then. I was in a rally and one of my colleagues who was a Lebanese woman announced it. She, she did me a favor by announcing it publicly. And it chose a date and I decided that I suggested that everybody on that date please wear a headscarf. I mean, I don't necessarily support this or that religious view or heads garbage was symbolic. It was to say we're all, it's like people Some are saying we're all this now. So um, that was really interesting. I, um, I got a lot of media support for a whole month. I, for the first time in my life, I got interviewed by just about anyone and everyone. Um, the media, the mainstream media in Australia declared it a total failure. <laughs> They're quite happy to say that was a total failure. It wasn't. It, it, a lot of people got back to me and said they did do it, whole schools, men did it. You know, 
And so that was kind of interesting. That was a very interesting story. Uh, the really one notable thing was uh, that I was interviewed by Israeli radio, a mainstream radio station in Israel. And the woman asked me, the interviewer asked me in Hebrew, that was done in Hebrew, and she said, why did you do it? Everybody was asking me, why did you do it? You're Jewish, why do you care? I, mean, I don't understand. I started to say, I don't understand the question. But when the Israeli woman said that, she asked me, why, why are you doing it? And I said, because in the 1930s, when Jews were spat upon and had their beards cut in the streets of Berlin because they were dressed like Jews, that was not okay. And I will not allow that to happen to somebody else uh, as long as I'm here. And her response was, you shouldn't have mentioned the Holocaust and hung up on me live on radio. I'm not allowed to learn the universal lesson from the Holocaust. I don't know what she wanted to hear from me, why I did this, because I'm a saint or something, I'm not. I learned this from what I was taught. You don't sit down and watch somebody else being treated badly and you say nothing. Israel taught me that. It's just they didn't want me to take the lesson out of Israel. And I have. And for that, I'm very pleased. This is a really interesting point because shoot forward to today, where anyone that says anything remotely contentious towards Israel or what's happening to the Palestinians or in any way shows any kind of solidarity or support of the people that are suffering in that region, you're automatically labeled anti-Semitic. And this is from the top to the bottom of our society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is um, Jeremy Corbyn has been labeled anti-Semitic, yeah. various different people within the Labour Party. I myself have expressed certain views on this, um, where obviously, because I'm the wrong color skin and from the wrong background, it's not okay for me to say these kind of things. And this is something that spans across our society. We've got to a point where labeling out what's wrong against anything to do with Israel or, or, or people of a Jewish background is automatically labeled anti-Semitic, which sadly seems to me has given carte blanche to do whatever you want because no one can call you out on it. And that's why it works. This is a way, this is a very cynical way for Israel to silence criticism. So Israel has hijacked Jewishness. Israel has defined what being Jewish is. And all these organizations that are on, on Jeremy's, uh, at Jeremy Corbyn's throat for no fault of his own, he's done nothing wrong and nobody in the Labour Party has actually done anything wrong. All these organizations are self-appointed and presumed to speak for all Jews where probably most Jews don't even agree with them. They're staunch supporters of Israel. To say that criticizing the Israeli state is anti-Semitic is a wonderful way to silence any criticism of Israel and stop people from looking into what's actually happening. It's one of the reasons I speak up. It shouldn't be that people who aren't Jewish can't speak up. It's all of our civic duty to speak up when some one of our species is being hurt, no matter where, no matter who they are, right? And I don't care now anymore that it's Israel and it's Jews doing this to Palestinians. They could do this to Martians. It doesn't matter. It's a crime. A crime is a crime. When a crime is committed, we don't say there are worthy or less worthy victims or there are more privileged perpetrators that uh, should be let off the hook because they're more privileged. We try to have a, a legal system that looks at a crime, not at who the people are. The same needs to exist in international relations. You should be allowed to speak against Israel. If you started to say that Jews are horrible and filthy and terrible, that would be racism. But if you criticize a state for its policies, for its settler colonialism, for its apartheid, for its policies against Palestinians, it's absolutely right and proper for you to do that. I would be disappointed in you if you didn't. It's a cynical, absolutely cynical tactic 
to just obscure the truth and stop people from doing that. And I, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to be absolutely honest uh, about my personal concerns about you know speaking up because I have and I have had attacks and threats mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. Coming into this conversation, there's many things that I would have wanted to express, but also having to be quite careful about the fact that I'm not in the privileged position like you. I'm not from an Israeli background. I'm not Jewish, which almost for me and potentially other people that are observing this situation playing out puts us in a situation where we feel uncomfortable to speak out because it's not my place to do so or I'm going to be labelled as Do such. you know yourself to be racist? No, absolutely. Do you not. know yourself to be anti-Semitic? No. Okay. I don't see Jewish. Th therefore... I don't recognise religion or countries, so therefore, I don't see someone as Jewish. Therefore, you should speak. So in all of my talks, when I do... Part of my activism is that I do public speaking on Palestine. And my talks are always directed at the non-Jewish audience. The ones who are afraid to speak because of what's going on. And I tell them, I want you to speak. Don't be afraid. Do it together with other people. Do it with the support of other groups. But don't be intimidated into silence. If we um, imagine that um, pedophilia, right? Imagine that uh, among pedophiles were really high prominent people in great positions of power. I heard that story before. And if you tried to say anything against them, they would immediately say, oh, you're anti this, or you're bad, or, you know. People would commit crimes and try to hide them, will use any tactic in the book to try and deflect attention away from themselves. By the way, that's the definition of evil by uh, M. Scott Peck in the book um, People of the Lie. Mm -hmm. It's not only do you do harm, but you try to deflect attention from it and obscure it and hide it. I encourage you and everybody to speak out. This is what people need to do. You need to do it for your own conscience and you need to do it because it's the right thing to do. We cannot be intimidated by the very same bullies that are doing the bad things. If we do that, if we get ourselves... Look, I'm called anti-Semitic. I'm called anti-Semitic. I had people question the fact that I was born in Israel to the point where I literally put my birth certificate on Facebook. I said, oh, yeah, oh no, I'm from Israel, here's the birth certificate, it says so. So um, this, is, this is a normal thing. It's just people can't cope with something that challenges their worldview and what they believe. And we need to, where possible, ease them into it and help them. And that's one, one of the reasons I publish, that's one of the reasons I speak, is because I try to say to people, listen, we've all been there, mm. we come out of it, there is life after that too. Um, and those who are, you know, digging the hills and will never budge, they are the people that you don't engage with. I, I They're dangerous, actually. The, the, the challenge is now, is this is not just a belief system, this is now codified into law. You know, the, oh, the, 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 you know, how we define anti-Semitism, you know, the, the, the laws, obviously, the, the changes in the law in Israel. For, for me, I, I read that and it was a, a very parallel story to the Nuremberg laws in Germany in the 30s. And where that's why that should be easier for people like yourself uh, to speak up, because Israel is now officially defining itself as an apartheid ethnic state. And it makes it very, very visible. Israel, thanks to Netanyahu being who he is, he's a bit like Trump, you know, he's showing up what's wrong. The previous leaders were very good at obscuring <laughs> the truth. He's not, he's a buffoon, he just says everything and he just, he's gone too far. And I think it's because he's doing that, he's making it a lot easier for us now. Absolutely, <laughs> because they are showing us what's <laughs> wrong. Know. In the same way, 
Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany showed us what was wrong with ourselves. That's right. And that we operated systems of racism with our own countries and we wanted to move as far away from that as possible when we saw what happened when we let it run out of control that we then looked at ourselves and changed our own behavior That's patterns. Right. And I'm hoping that Trump and Netanyahu would do the same for us, where they get us to look at ourselves and think, I think it's happening. I think it's happening. And I think in that sense, there is hope, at least the impression I'm getting from social media, from some of the articles that are starting to appear in mainstream media, I'm getting a good feeling about this, that people are learning. You and me both, yeah. yeah. So we do need to, to challenge and highlight that there will be people listening to this that are disgusted with what you're saying because of the atrocities that the Palestinians have carried out terrorist attacks and bombs and suicide attacks and that kind of thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? All right, I'll, I'll start with a little story. Do, sure. you know, do you know your Bible at all? Do you know the story of Samson the Great? Yep. Samson and Delilah? Mm-hmm. Samson was captured by the Philistines and he was a great Hebrew or Jewish hero. And they cut his hair, his hair was a source of his strength and they cut his hair and they locked him up in the temple and they mm-hmm chained him to to pillars there and by that time his hair started to grow and they didn't realize he was getting his strength back and up on the roof according to the biblical story there were 3,000 Philistines that I think that's a bit but anyway 3,000 Philistines celebrating or something having a bit of a, a bit of a party and Samson pulls the temple columns and because he's strong again he destroys the temple and he kills himself and 3,000 Philistines and we land this as a story of heroism this is heroic he was doing that for his people he was a freedom fighter the Philistines were oppressing the, the, the Jews the Hebrews at the time never mind it it's not history but that's the story we were told Samson is a suicide bomber he kills himself and kills 3,000 people in the process he's a hero of my people because I grew up that when you're oppressed, it's your duty to fight back. The Holocaust survivors are being looked down upon because there was always this impression, which by the way is ensured that they never fought back. They were looked down upon because they were weak because they didn't fall back. They didn't fight back. They just went like sheep to the slaughter. So a big ethos that I grew up with is that if you are oppressed, it is your duty to fight back to your people and to yourself. But that's only, that's only for us though. Now, but the Palestinians are fighting back because of what we did to them. That's not okay. They're, they're terrorists. So now, I am not condoning anything, any violence at all. I'm pacifist. I will not carry a weapon. I will not kill anybody. I don't want anybody killing anybody else. But one thing people don't know, and maybe the listeners don't realize, is that absolutely the vast majority, the bulk of Palestinian resistance is peaceful resistance. Israel has made a concerted effort right from the beginning to kill every single moderate Palestinian they could put their hands on. They just arrested the woman for writing two poems they didn't like because they were poems of resistance. When you have an oppressive culture, when you have a settler colonial culture, they don't just destroy people in body, they destroy their spirit. Because spirit is resistance. As long as there's spirit, there's resistance. So resistance, the way we were taught, was a duty of to yourself and to your people if you were oppressed, but it's not okay for the Palestinians. Bulk of Palestinian resistance is actually peaceful. But the media like to highlight the atrocities. They like to highlight the bombs, the rockets, the bad things. And mind you, if for example you look at Gaza, the rockets that you're talking that are going into Israel are puny little backyard made 
ridiculous things where Israel is armed to the teeth, 300 nuclear weapons ready to deploy. They've got top or notch weaponry in Israel. They supply the whole world. They actually sell nuclear, they sell weapons to the UK, they sell weapons to other countries and very, very high tech. This is what the Palestinians are up against. They're demonized because that's what colonial powers always do. They demonize the people. They used to do that to the Aborigines in Australia. So whenever the people resist occupation or colonization or oppression, they become bad. I um, recently did a talk on the suffragettes because this year is the uh, 100 years. Um, Henry Pankhurst. Yeah. And, you know, when I did looked into it, uh, these women were distributing flyers in the street. They were being arrested, they were being dragged, they were being force-fed mm. when they went on hunger strikes, treated really brutally. What were they doing exactly? Asking not to be oppressed, asking not to be treated as, as less, well, less worthy than men or than other people. Um, slaves who revolted were treated that way. Society has an investment in, um, in treating anybody who resists oppression as, uh, as, as the problem, as the terrorist. I'm not condoning violence, but what do you expect people to do? I have no idea what I would do if I was a Palestinian in the West Bank or in Gaza or somewhere in Lebanon. I don't know. How do we decipher the truth as a layman, if I'm sat in my armchair, in particular with the reporting of this conflict by the media and you know, my personal desire to, to, to have a balanced perspective? Well, there are books out, so I can definitely recommend any book that Ilan Pape has written, Dr. Ilan Pape. Okay. They're very readable. Um, there are also great media outlets. So, first of all, people can't just rely on mainstream media to get their news from. They really have to go beyond that. Uh, until the media get a clue, we, we do have to look for alternative sources. So there are, play, there are great publications online. One of them is called Mondo Vice, M-O-N-D-O, Vice, W-E-I-S-S, uh, written by, it's actually created by a Jewish man, uh, Philip, Phil Weiss in New York. It's based in New York, and he writes a lot about Israel and Palestine that's really worth reading. There's the Middle East Monitor, there's the Palestinian Intifada, the, the Electronic Intifada, sorry. There's a lot of online publications. People just have to look, do a bit of Googling, and find, find the places to read, and not just stick to what the, the party line, to what's available to us. So, going back to your personal struggle with identity, how do you describe yourself today? Obviously, you've been on a tremendous journey from where you started to where you are now, and you, you know, absolutely commend you on you know the the, the, the you. facing some some of the challenges you faced, and obviously having to, to struggle with the the external attacks, you know, and threats on your life. But how do you describe yourself today? You you mentioned earlier you, you renounced your Jewish citizenship. My Israeli citizenship. Sorry. I can't renounce my Jewishness. It's in my birth certificate. That's actually a really good point, what you just okay. said. You can renounce your Israeli citizenship, but in Israel I'm still considered as having Jewish nationality. Okay. On my birth certificate it says that my religion, which I do not have, is Jewish, and my nationality is Jewish, but I no longer have Israeli citizenship. In Israel there's a difference between citizenship and nationality. Nationality does not mean the same thing. It means in other countries. Okay. It's two different things. Uh, this is an interesting point because obviously <laughs> as people we have a natural tendency to want to, to, to label and for me it's the labels that separate us you are British you are Asian you're a man you're this you're that you're the other and there's all these boxes that people try and put you in and I spent my whole life trying to break those boxes me too. and people find it really hard to define me I know 
That's but a good thing. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, really what I'm getting at is how do you define yourself now, given that your journey has meant that you have done your best to shrug off some of the labels that you were given? I'm a female member of the human species. That's it. Uh-huh. Doing my best. And when you see other people who are other human beings who are suffering and being persecuted, just like the, the, the Jewish uh, people who were persecuted and suffered before, you know, again, when you view that, when you view them, sort of how do you view those people? How would you box or label them? Members of my species? You are a member of my species? Of the male persuasion, maybe? Um, but yeah, that, that's it. The people are people are people. When you're a psychotherapist, you learn one thing, a big, big lesson, is that everybody's the same. We're also obviously unique, but we're also the same. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story, everybody matters, everybody has an incredibly rich inner world that they can barely describe to somebody else. As a therapist, you are trained to do the best you can to come as close as possible to somebody else's inner world, but nobody can describe their inner reality to somebody else. We're each incredibly unique, incredibly valuable, and also exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I know that now. So I'm not impressed, I'm not starstruck. I don't care how much money people have, or what they wear, or where they live, or what color they have, or what their, 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 their skin is, or I don't care about any of that. I'm interested in people, in their belief systems. I'm interested what, how I would judge a person is, do they live according to their own values? Mm. And if they do, I can respect that. That includes Zionists. I don't agree with them. I think what they're doing is bad. And I will put them in prison if I could. But I can respect somebody who lives according to their own values. I don't respect people or have trouble respecting people who betray themselves mm. and who betray others. But essentially, we're all the same. That's an interesting Is that point, weird? Then. No, it's not at all. I mean, that's an interesting point because I find that there are a lot of people that fundamentally don't trust and love themselves. Mm-hmm. So obviously how they show up in the world is a reflection of the relationship they have with themselves. That's right. And it goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. It's a, a reflection of their own internal insecurity, that's their right. own challenging relationship with themselves. The, the fact they don't trust or like themselves, how can they possibly have that love and empathy and compassion for anybody else? That is true. You know, from my personal journey, you know, part of it was when I went vegan, and it was, I started to realize that actually, every time I lived my life and consumed animals, every time I did that, I was harming myself, and I was living in a way that was incongruent with my own value system. I was betraying myself. Exactly. And there was a simple choice. And Either you chose... I was to live according to your values, and so for that, I respect you. Well, actually, I was offered a choice, and the choice was change your value system or live true to what currently you have. Yeah, except so I, I don't think we can change our values. No, absolutely. And for, for me, not that way. I have seen people that have changed their value system when the penny has dropped. It's, it's interesting to observe, but it's just, okay, all right, I'm still going to stick with this, and this is something we've seen in America with uh, the gun issues where people have actually start, started to adapt their value system to suit the story, to suit the narrative, the people that are on the fence. And that for me is quite disturbing. Whereas for me, the choice was, you're this way or you're this way. That's right, it becomes a choice. Do you know the story of the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? No. So the guy who wrote Amazing Grace was a, a slave trader, quite a wealthy guy. And uh, he was a ship owner, he owned ships and he was transporting slaves to, you know, and uh, to England and, and to England's, England's colonies. 
And uh, one day he was on this ship and there's this big, big storm and the ship nearly capsizes and they all die, I mean nearly. And so he prays to God, really, really strongly prays to God and said, God, please, if, please save us. If you save us, I promise you I'm leaving all of this. I'm giving all my money away and I'm stopping it. And uh, the storm abated and they were saved and he was true to his word and he gave up all his money and he became a lowly teacher in a, in a, a religious school and he became a kind of a monk really and um, he was the one who was the inspiration for William Wilberforce who spent 52 okay. years yeah. of his life abolishing and he got to see that, he was still alive, yeah. the, the old guy. He wrote Amazing Grace, I once was blind but now I see, but what I've always thought was this wasn't some miracle from God. He already was uncomfortable with what he was doing. He was looking for an excuse to stop it. Yeah. That gave him the perfect excuse to stop that. He was already a good man deep down, was doing bad things. He couldn't live with what he was doing and he used the opportunity he had to leave it. And I, I made a promise to God, I can't go back on that. So that was it. And I think that that says that his values were already there. He was just maybe conditioned by his social class, his society, his parents, his family, I don't know, to go into that kind of trade, this appalling trade. And he was good at it. He was a smart guy, so he did well. But I don't think he sat, it sat comfortably with him. And he fought the rest of his life. He was, he was teaching students against slavery. And this is, this is a, a fascinating point because I genuinely believe in the innate goodness of every human being. I genuinely believe that that's the case. I, th um, I believe we're capable of it, yes. And I think that at some level we all know that destroying the environment, chopping down the rainforest, killing hundreds of billions of land animals every year, destroying the oceans, you know, the, the, the racism and persecution that happens of people of certain faiths and cultures and backgrounds. I think at some level we all know that that's wrong very few of us act on it and you describe it as kind of the three parties that are involved in a crime um so, so it would be the, the perpetrator the uh victim and the bystander mm. yeah uh, and somebody corrected me on that the other day and said i read your book and actually i think the collaborator is a part of it too and i think maybe it's a four thing not three mm. there are four people there four four participants the collaborator does as well mm -hmm. so yeah we need bystanders we need people who do nothing and say nothing and keep the status quo and just survive for, their, for themselves and for their own little family, which I, by the way, do not judge. I understand this is nature. What do we do then? How do we create a world where we're all not afraid anymore and we do the right thing? And I guess it comes down to them people standing up and speaking out. And given that, the, you know, having to face death threats and the challenges to you and your life, what led you to choose to stand up and fight for this? Because, you know, people could say it's not your fight. It is my fight. It's personal to me. I was a collaborator with a country that did this and with the army that, that, that does this, still does. That's one thing. Another thing is I want to give you somebody else's word. There was a, a wonderful woman called Tanya Reinhardt who was a professor of um, linguistics under Noam Chomsky and she wrote a few books and Tanya, I had the privilege of meeting her very shortly before she died suddenly from uh, a sudden stroke. She came to Australia when I was just in the beginning of my, my road as, a, as an activist and I, we had a, a function, we had a, a rally and then we had a function together and we, we all sat for dinner and I remember I was sitting outside in some restaurant and I remember asking her in Hebrew, I said, Tanya, is it difficult to do because I was just starting and I was a bit nervous and she looked at me and she said, it's more difficult not to. And those words got etched in my brain. And I know what she meant now. 
betraying myself and my own value system would be worse than any of it. I, can't, I couldn't live with myself. So for me, that's what it boils down to. It's like you said, you had to live with yourself doing the wrong thing while your values were telling you something else. But then you made a choice because living with your own values and being okay with yourself and looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at yourself at the end of your life and thinking, have I lived, have I lived a decent life? Have I done okay? And that's more important than whether or not you're complied with other people, whether or not other people like you or not. Our discussion today is going to challenge a lot of people and their belief systems. You know, for, for many people, change doesn't happen like that. It's not just you hear some contrary or conflicting information and you change your viewpoint. Yeah. And many people are going to go into denial. Some people might be curious. Some people might be angry and upset. What would your advice be to people that are challenged or potentially even triggered by our discussion? Where can they go to get more information? First of all, I would advise them to be gentle with their own feelings, to feel challenged and to feel uncomfortable and to feel angry and to feel upset or confused if you hear information that contradicts what you believe is actually very normal. Mm. So go gentle. I prefer that people were slow with it and more gentle with themselves and they rushed into it. Once they've reached a point where they can tolerate their uncomfortable feelings and they have the courage to go and open a book then I really, like I said before, I recommend a book, books by Ilan Pape to have a read. They're very, very good books and very readable, and any of them would do. Uh, a good one to start with would be The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. There you've got the facts, you've got everything's referenced, everything is uh, from documents, this is not conjecture, it's not people's opinions, it's facts. The next thing people need to do, I think, once they read this, is they need to ask themselves, no matter how comfortable they might be feeling, what are they actually supporting? Mm. It doesn't matter that it's Jews in Israel who are doing what they're doing. What matters is what they're doing. Do you support settler colonialism and the crimes it commits against indigenous people, or do you not? And that's where I want people to be honest. And when I speak to Zionists, and when I meet people, when we do our stall in the street in Inverness, and be amazed how many Israelis I meet. I ask them that. I just want you to think about whether, I don't expect people to answer that straight away, but do you, do you support, in principle, settler colonialism? Because I, what I do find is that a lot of people who support Israel would not support um, harm done to other indigenous people. But when it comes <coughs> to the Palestinians, the blinkers, the tribal loyalty comes before, and I'd like them to move a step back and say, well, is that not the same? Mm -hmm. So I'd like people to move away from identities and more into focus on what's actually happening. Learn about what's happening on the ground. Read about Gaza. Talk to people. Talk to Palestinian people. Go to talks. Go to movies. We have a Palestine film festival every year in our humble highlands, you know, in, in Scotland. Every August we have a week, uh, sorry, a month where we have films um, a couple of times a week we have films that are selected that are very interesting that show all kinds of things from there. Watch films and there's loads of online. By the way, if people want Ilan Pape, he's actually speaking on YouTube quite a lot. So he's got a lot of his talks are there and you can choose, pick and choose if you don't want to read a whole book. But first of all, be gentle with your own feelings. To feel resistance and to feel uncomfortable is actually normal. It's very human. If you're not gentle with yourself, you're not likely to 
to do the journey. And people go through the various different stages of denial, mm. anger, before yeah. you get to the point where you can integrate. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And there have been stories of solidarity. Celtic yeah. Football Club, and they were playing. Oh, in, yes, uh, I love seeing the Palestinian flag in those yeah. games, yeah. And, and, and showing that as a, as a show of solidarity That's with the right. people of Palestine, which, which gives hope that then, you know, Palestinians yeah. shouldn't feel like they're and alone. The Palestinians need to know that they're not alone, and that's very, very hard when you're behind that fence, you know. And is that the way we heal? We start connecting with what combines us rather than what divides us? Absolutely. What we Relationships, have in common, let's what's talk. different about let's, us. Let's look in each other's eyes, let's mm. find out who we are. And then suddenly the person is not the enemy anymore. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and we're all on this rock together. And as mm. far as I know, there are no other planets at the moment that we can live on. So well, I hope there is isn't, it. because we fucked this one up. I really hope we don't find another one to I am, I'm very much into space exploration, very interested in astronomy and all of that. And, but I'm always thinking, let's, let's do this one well first, and mm. then we'll see. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think it's about relationships. But we also have to recognize that what's happening in Israel, we can't just sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya because we have a powerful power structure that's keeping things the way they are. Mm -hmm. That power structure has to be dismantled. And I don't know if that's going to happen in Israel. If that happens in Israel, great, but it might not. I don't see anybody toppling any system at the moment. You know, apartheid happened from outside, a lot of pressure from outside and, and a bit of pressure from the inside eventually collapsed. And that's the best model we've got, and we hope that the same will happen in Israel. But until that power structure is dismantled, those people are still under siege. The people who are keeping this that way have a good reason to do it. There's arms trading, there's complicated stuff underneath the surface that nobody nobody gets told about. Mm -hmm. Except if you read your alternative media, of course. Abigail, I want to thank you so much for traveling down from the Highlands to be with us today. It's been a really insightful conversation. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on Life Changing Conversations. As ever, um, for those of you who are listening, like, comment, share, give us your feedback if this has challenged you, if there are thoughts, feelings, emotions that have come up that you want to get off your chest, feel free to, 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 to comment on, on, on the post here. We will be putting links on to Abigail's book, Beyond Tribal Loyalties, where you can read her story in full and many, many others as well as many of the links that she's mentioned where you can go to to find further information. It's a real pleasure. We'll see you next time. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak uh, publicly about this. I really appreciate that. And I, it's lovely to meet you and all the people that work here. It's a wonderful place. Thank you. You've been listening to the Life Changing Conversations podcast with Neil Shah. This podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment and share and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC podcast.